If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 50 this morning. I'm going to read this text for us, and then I'll pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the table back here on the Uh, close to the stairs, make sure you grab one on your way out. Again, we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word, a physical copy of God's Word. Uh, So I'm going to read this for us and then pray, and we'll begin. John 12, starting at verse, well, I'll look at the second half of verse 36 on to the end. And it reads, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. We have to open it together, to read it, to learn from it, to apply it to our lives. Father, I am a fallible man with limited ability. God, I can do nothing on my own. My thoughts don't matter. My words don't matter. Lord, it is only your word that gives life. It is only the word of God that transforms hearts and changes lives. So, Father, I pray that as I have this opportunity to preach your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place this morning. First, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in and through me as I preach this word. But, Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work opening hearts and ears to receive the truth of what we discuss here this morning. Father, would you bring transformation? Would you raise the dead to life through the preaching of your word today? And would Christ be exalted through it all? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So belief can often be a very mysterious concept. You see, even when we have the intellectual ability to conceive a particular truth and even the evidence to go along to support it, 
Trusting and believing that truth can be very, very difficult. You see, this is an issue that plagued the nation of Israel, and it's certainly an issue that plagues us in our day and time as well. You see, last week we had the opportunity to look at Jesus' final moments of his public ministry after his triumphal entry, and what we found is that Jesus' popularity had begun to grow. And we saw this group of Gentiles had now come up to the Passover feast, and they're seeking out Jesus. They want to see Jesus. But we learned that Jesus was undeterred by their request, and he had begun his march to the cross. He was totally focused on the commitment he had to achieving the Lord's plan of redemption. And we found there that Jesus reminded anyone who would come after him that they must follow him, they must hate their own lives, and must follow the risen Savior even into death. And so what we saw is that Jesus extended this uh, invitation, this final invitation he gives to the people who are listening to them. And he says, listen, the light is only going to be with you a little bit longer. And so one more time, he gives them the opportunity to repent and be saved. See, the Son of God had come to the nation of Israel and dwelt among them, and they had seen all of the wonderful things that he had done. They had heard his powerful teaching, had multiple opportunities to turn to him and be saved, but unfortunately, we would find that they will remain in unbelief. They fail to respond to his plea. See, what we see is that their time has finally run out. And that brings us to our text for this morning. And this is really a remarkable piece of scripture for a couple of reasons. Again, because we're going to see this overwhelming indictment of the nation of Israel, of these people who had seen all that Jesus had done, who had the scriptures given to them, who had laid eyes on Christ Jesus, the Savior, and remained in their unbelief. However, the second reason that this is such a remarkable passage is because we're going to see the reason for their unbelief. See, this brings us to a really crucial point in John's gospel surrounding this idea of belief and unbelief. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we get this right. It's absolutely essential that we understand and are able to make distinctions between true belief and false belief and the motivations behind those things, behind those responses. So what I want to do this morning is I have four observations that I want to make as we look at this text together. So if you're taking notes, these will be the four headings that we'll use. Point number one is the problem of unbelief. The problem of unbelief. Point number two, the reason for unbelief. The reason for unbelief. Point number three would be the deception of false belief. The deception of false belief. And then finally, number four will be the need for belief. The need for belief. Again, I think this text presents some really challenging truths for us. There's some things that we're going to have to wrestle with as we look at this passage, some things that we're going to need to reconcile. But my hope is that we would all walk away from this time encouraged. I hope that we're able to see the sovereign hand of God at work in salvation. And I hope that that would humble anybody who may be proud or haughty in this place this morning. But also hope that seeing these realities 
compels us to a deeper and greater devotion to the Savior who is Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, let's, let's begin walking through this text. So we'll start verses 36 and 7. Again, point number one is this, the problem of unbelief. So in verse 36, it says that after Jesus had said these things, he goes and he departs and he hides himself from the people. So again, this is Jesus closing his time of public ministry. And as we found last week, again, he extends this invitation one final time, but then he departs. See, then Jesus leaves the people and it says that he hides himself from them. Now you may be asking yourself, okay, why does Jesus do that? Why does he hide from them? Why does he depart? This seems like a really odd thing for Jesus to do. Well, there are really two reasons we could suggest for Jesus's actions here, for him departing and hiding from the crowd. Number one, see, Jesus is departing from this crowd as a means of his judicial warning or his judgment. You see, this is Jesus showing them that their time has indeed run out, that the sun has set on their opportunity to repent and believe in him. The light is no longer with them. He's going away. He is departing from them. Their time has passed. It's one suggestion. Suggestion number two, and this could be possible, but it could be that Jesus hides himself from the religious leaders. If you recall, the Pharisees are there at that feast, and they're very aggressive towards Jesus. They had instrumented a, or instituted a plot to kill him. And so Jesus, maybe he hides himself from them so he's not taken by them, and so he doesn't go to the cross a moment too soon. We've seen Jesus flee from the opposition before as part of his divine timing. So that certainly is a possibility as well. The text doesn't directly tell us why Jesus departed, so we'd really only be drawing conclusions here based on the limited information that we have. Nevertheless, we know that Jesus has indeed withdrawn from these people. You see, when we look at verse 37, we see an overwhelming indictment of this group. Let's look at verse 37. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. See, what John writes here is truly astounding. He says that they'd seen all these incredible signs that Jesus performed, and they still wouldn't believe. You see, when we look at John's gospel, he uses the word sign to attribute to Jesus's miracles. And you got to think about the intentionality of that language. See, a sign is supposed to direct us somewhere. It's supposed to point us to a particular truth. That's how John describes Jesus's miracles as signs. You see, John is even strategic in the signs that he chooses to record. See, we get the first sign at the wedding feast in Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. Some of the other signs we get are in John chapter 5, where Jesus takes the man who's lame, who'd been crippled for years, and Jesus tells him to get up and walk. He heals this crippled man. We also see in John chapter 9 that Jesus has uh, healed or given sight to this blind man, man who had been born blind. Jesus gives the man his sight. Other signs we see, the feeding of the 5,000, and then obviously raising Lazarus from the dead. See, Jesus had done all of these miraculous things, and they weren't just random signs. They each serve a specific purpose. 
to show that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the promised King of Israel. See, the issue is they may have believed in the miracles. I don't think that these people even doubted the legitimacy of what Jesus was doing. The problem was they didn't believe in him. See, their rejection of Christ is only amplified when you consider they had the scriptures in front of them. See, God had given him his written revelation. They knew the Old Testament that prophesied about the Messiah that is to come. And somehow they still missed the identity of this Savior that's standing right in front of them, even seeing all that he had done, even seeing the prophecies fulfilled right before their eyes. They still ignored and rejected and denied Jesus. They would not believe, even with a mountain of evidence in front of them. In front of them, they still refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Friends, this is the problem with unbelief. You see, it's so stubborn. It's obstinate. It's just so determined. And we'll get into this more in just a minute when we talk specifically about Israel's rejection of Christ. But we'd be naive to think that stubborn unbelief and denial of Jesus Christ is exclusive to this group of people that John describes here. Listen, I'm sure for a lot of us, we've, we've encountered this before, right? If you're a believer, you've probably attempted to have conversations about Christ with unbelieving family members or unbelieving friends, and we've run into this issue of stubborn unbelief. See, sometimes we have these conversations with unbelieving individuals, and we try to offer an apologetic for the gospel, We can present all kinds of evidence, historical evidence, archaeological evidence. You can produce evidence that points to the reliability of Scripture. All of the thousands of manuscripts we have, the accuracy of the Bible, the way it fulfills specific prophecy. You can even point to scientific evidence that coincides with the truth of what God's Word tells us, and they just will not believe. They simply refuse, regardless of how compelling the evidence is might be. They're ready and they're armed with a response. They're ready with a rebuttal to dismiss all that you've given to them. You see, with unbelieving hearts, they refuse to accept the gospel. There's a willful rebellion to the things of God, much like this group of Jews, much like these Pharisees who denied Christ. So they were determined to reject him, to ignore what was right in front of them, even the most obvious and undeniable signs. And we'll talk about the spiritual implications and the reason behind this persistent unbelief in just a minute. But what I want to do now is is offer you just a little bit of encouragement here. I think it's really easy for us to leave those types of conversations and just be discouraged. I know that's happened to me. You share with somebody and you preach the gospel to them. You point them to the glories of Christ hoping to see the lost come to salvation, whether it's a family member, friend, maybe to you college students, it's some of your classmates. And they walk away from that conversation just as spiritually dead as they entered it. So you're discouraged. And you say, man, what's the point? Why should I even continue to bother ministering to this person? They're just not going to believe. Listen, I want to remind you of your own story. I want to remind you that nobody's born a Christian. Nobody's born a believer. 
I want you to think back on your own story. It took somebody preaching the gospel to you, somebody opening the scriptures for you over and over again. Listen, I'm preaching to myself here because that was certainly my story. I didn't come to know the Lord Jesus until I was 33 years old. And praise God, I had family members and friends that continued to preach the gospel to me and point me to the truth of God's word. And then like that, God raises the dead. He gave me a believing heart. And I'm just thankful for the persistence, the persistence and the endurance of those who continue to point me to this truth. And that's my encouragement to you. Listen, it's the word of God that saves. I want to point you to Isaiah 55. Wonderful text, Isaiah 55, chapter, or verses 10 and 11. And this is what God says. This is the power of God's word. God says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Brothers and sisters, be diligent here. Stand firm, continue pressing on, moving forward with the gospel message, trusting the Lord to do what only he can of giving the gift of belief to a lost and dying world. You understand that the world is indeed lost and dying. There's an unbelieving world out there. That's why Grant and Ray's are going to Hungary. So when we understand that reality, that the world is in unbelief, the majority, not in Christ. See, does that motivate you to continue sharing the truth of God's word, to continue praying for the lost? Brothers and sisters, share this gospel truth with unbelievers. Pray for the Lord to overcome their unbelief. That's point number one. We certainly see this problem of unbelief. That's point number one. Point number two, we're going to see now the reason for unbelief. You see, here's where the rubber meets the road, as the old saying goes. You see, John has clearly laid this indictment against these people. They saw all that Jesus had done, but they would not believe in him. And here in verse 38, he begins to explain why they refused to believe in him. Let's look at verses 38 through 40. Actually, I want to read 37 too. It says that he had done so many signs before them and they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen closely to verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You see, John says, after all these signs, they still did not believe. And verse 38 begins here with, so that. See, that's incredibly significant. This is what we call a purpose clause. The phrase, so that acts as a because or a qualifier. It gives us a reason for the statement that precedes it. 
So why wouldn't they believe? It's for the purpose of fulfilling the scriptures. Or to state this a little more theologically accurate, it's because the scriptures necessitated their unbelief. See, it's what God had ordained. The word of God had called for the unbelief of Israel. That's what he willed. You see here, John cites Isaiah twice. He cites the prophet Isaiah twice. First, he references here Isaiah 53.1, which if you recall, Isaiah 53 is just a beautiful passage of Scripture as it points forward to the suffering servant who is Jesus Christ, the one who was crushed for our iniquities, who was pierced for our transgressions. I think most of us are familiar with this passage. It's a beautiful piece of Scripture. It's a reminder that Jesus suffered on our behalf. He bore the burden of our sin. But you see, if you go back to Isaiah 53, Isaiah begins the chapter with a sobering question that John references here. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? You see, despite all of the prophecies, this prophecy in Isaiah 53 and the other prophecies that had come to the nation of Israel, there would still be those who would not believe. See, the Lord spoke through his prophets telling of this Messiah that was to come, whose kingdom would endure forever, the one who would eternally liberate his people, and yet the Jews still refused to believe. See, the unbelief of the people and the rejection of Christ by his own is consistent in fulfilling the word that the Lord had foretold. And get this, this isn't just what God had foretold, it's what God had ordained by design. See, John cites the Isaiah passage here to show us the reason for their unbelief. See, we learn that God ordains what God ordains will come to pass. See, I want to offer you a little bit more encouragement here this morning. The word of the Lord must be fulfilled. In fact, it cannot turn out any other way. So the word that had come to Isaiah, oh, about 700 years prior to Jesus coming to earth, will be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that should give you confidence in the Bible that you hold in your hand. Again, I want to encourage you. Listen, the promises that you read in this book are guaranteed. It's not a maybe. It's not an if. Everything that the Lord says to us here will come to pass. Amen, somebody. Because what does that tell us? It tells us that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. It says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of God tells us, Jesus says, I will not lose any that the Father has given to me. Listen, we don't have to worry how it all works out in the end. The Lord has told us that Jesus is victorious over sin and death and that his people are triumphant in him. That's guaranteed. I hope someone's excited about that. Like, so you can trust in the word of the Lord. See, John reminds us that the unbelief of Israel is in fulfillment of the scriptures. But then in verse 39, he writes something that we must pay attention to here. He says, therefore, they could not 
believe. Now, this may be a stumbling block to some people this morning. This is going to be a debate back and forth about what's being said here, and that's fine. Listen, I'm a firm believer that the appropriate meaning or interpretation of a text comes by the simplest reading of the text, by looking at the immediate context, the theme of what's being communicated here, and just simply, naturally reading what's being said. So, when the text says they could not believe, that's exactly what it means. They could not believe. You see, in other words, because of God's sovereign will, because he had ordained their unbelief as part of his divine plan, they were not able to receive Christ. They could not look to him in faith. You see, John goes so far to even cite the book of Isaiah yet again, this time as a qualifier for that statement. He says they could not believe. Then look at verse 40 right here. He says, he, that he is God. God has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their heart, lest they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You see, this comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. If you recall Isaiah 6, again, very popular passage of Scripture. Isaiah is in the throne room of the Lord, and he has this vision, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And his glory, it fills the temple. And Isaiah is undone because he's in the presence of this thrice holy God. And he realizes he's a sinful man and he unravels before the Lord. But then at the end of that passage, or close to the end of that passage in verse 10, he says, God says, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? And Isaiah responds and says, here I am. Send me. I'll go. And then the Lord gives a message to Isaiah to give to the nation. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Isaiah, and this is what it says. Isaiah 6.10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So here John says that the Lord blinded their eyes, that he's hardened their hearts and kept them from believing in Christ. So if we ask the question, what is the reason for their unbelief? The short answer is God. You see, according to this text, he is the divine authority behind their unbelief. He's the one who's hardened their hearts. Now, again, I know this can be a difficult concept, but I believe it is something that Scripture teaches. I want to unpack this a little bit. So I want to look at a passage of Scripture quickly from the Old Testament. And it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel, uh, there was... Eli, who was serving the Lord, and then he had some, his sons who were supposed to be serving as priests, and they were a wicked, corrupt bunch of guys. It was actually, I guess it was two men. They were wicked. They were mishandling the sacrifices, the offerings that were supposed to be given to the Lord for his glory. They were doing some other things. They were in some sexual sin that they weren't supposed to be in. And so Eli goes to his sons, and he pleads with them to repent to turn to God, to repent of their sin. And then this is what it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. It says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This is Samuel, or excuse me, Eli talking to his sons. And then it says this, 
but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. See, here we learn that they would not repent on the account of the Lord's will. They couldn't. They wouldn't. Now, I do want to be clear. I don't want anybody to walk out of here and misunderstand what I'm saying. This does not excuse them or any unbeliever from the guilt or responsibility or accountability they have in their own unbelief. They're still absolutely culpable. I don't want to make that crystal clear. Unbelief is still a willful denial. See, people choose to deny Christ. They stubbornly refuse to believe in him. You see, this idea of God's sovereign authority does not negate man's responsibility. Those two things work in unison. Now, how that works to perfection, I don't exactly know. When you get to heaven, maybe you can ask the Lord. We can sit down and talk through that. Listen, they're not free from any culpability. They're not free from any responsibility. See, the nation of Israel had willingly chose to reject the Lord Jesus. And what does God do? He begins to harden their hearts. See, we know they have a human responsibility because in verse 37, it tells us that they saw everything that Jesus did and still would not believe. They still wouldn't believe. So the text says he hardened their hearts. This is reminiscent of Pharaoh, if you recall, in the Exodus. Right? It says that God willingly he hardened Pharaoh's heart so he wouldn't release the people. But Pharaoh certainly is guilty for his own sin, for his part in that. God, yes, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh was not innocent. He willingly rebelled against God. You see, when we read texts like this, we're reminded that those who walk in darkness, who willingly reject Christ and refuse to turn in him, it's God who blinds them. It's God who hardens their hearts. He closes their ears. Listen, I'm simply saying, sometimes this is what judgment looks like. Sometimes this is what God's wrath looks like. As people continue to walk in unbelief, God gives them over to that. In fact, he begins to harden their hearts so they won't turn and repent. That's what we're seeing right here. See, that's a concept we see in Romans 1 where it says that God gave them over to their depraved minds. He let them have whatever it is that they wanted. That's what we're seeing right here. They did not want Christ, so God hardens their heart so they won't have him. It's a simple concept, I think, to understand. It can be difficult for us to reconcile. Again, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Yes, God is sovereign over all things. But you have a responsibility to repent and believe in the gospel. And if you continue in unbelief, if you're in here this morning... Maybe you've been walking in the darkness for years and you have no desire for Christ. And sometimes what that looks like is God just hardening in your heart and allowing you to continue in the sin of unbelief. So we've seen the problem of unbelief. We've now seen the reason for this unbelief. And now as we move to point three, we're going to see this sin of false 
believe. See, verse 41 says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. See, this is again referring to Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has this powerful vision. You see, this is significant because here John attributes this to Christ. You see, the hymn there is Jesus. So John clearly connects Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, to Jesus Christ here. And see, with this connection, this is a ringing endorsement of the deity of Christ. He is the one true God. And Isaiah had seen the glories of the living God. And again, he unravels when he's face to face with his holiness, his splendor, his perfection. You see, when seeing the glory of Christ, one cannot help but be transformed and overwhelmed. But unfortunately, this wasn't the case for these people. Let's look at verses 42 and 43. It says, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, Isaiah had been inspired to write about Christ because he encountered the glory of God. However, for these authorities, they were motivated by another type of glory. In fact, a lesser glory. And what we actually learn here is that many of these authorities, man, they actually did believe in Jesus. But they would not confess him openly because they feared the Pharisees. Specifically, they didn't want to get put out of the synagogue. See, the Pharisees, obviously the religious leaders of that day, they had a lot of authority. They had a lot of power, specifically with who was granted access to the synagogue. And they had already made plain, look, if any of you confess Jesus Christ, I'm not going to allow you into the temple. You can't enter into the synagogue. If you recall, we encountered this back in John chapter 9. The story of Jesus and the blind man and the Pharisees come to uh, the man's parents say, hey, who gave your son his sight? Is this your son? And then they knew exactly what had happened. They knew it was Jesus who had given him his sight. But it says that they didn't confess it for fear of the Pharisees because they didn't want to get put out of the synagogue. We see the same thing here. These authorities that believed in Jesus would not proclaim him openly. You see, they're driven by something here. These authorities, they're driven by something, and it's not faith in Christ. See, the text says, but for fear of the Pharisees. So that, you see that, that's their motivation right there. Their motivation is fear. Look, I want to stop right here for a second, and hopefully get everyone's attention. How often are you motivated by fear? Listen, even as Christians, as believers, the fear of man is a real thing. Think about the things in your own life that you do and you say because you're motivated by the fear of men, even if it's good things. Man, I got to keep up certain appearances or what are people going to think about me? I got to do certain things or man, if, they, if I don't, what are people going to say? This fear of man is often a motivator. Brothers and sisters, is that something that's hindering you this morning? Listen, I'm not saying that you're in sin if 
that's where you are. That's something that we all battle from time to time. I'm not saying that you aren't saved if you battle with this. However, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Amen? See, for the authorities here, however, I'm persuaded for them this isn't genuine belief. This is a false belief. Here's why. Because real belief produces a response. It leads to action and transformation. You see, these authorities may have had the cognitive ability to recognize Christ as the Messiah. Maybe they believed in their heads that he was truly the one who was sent by God. You see, they had most likely witnessed his miracles as well and could prove that they were authentic. But for all they knew in their heads, their hearts had not been changed. They didn't have their affections inflamed for the Lord Jesus. They wouldn't step out in faith and confess him publicly despite the ridicule and persecution that may come. See, they believed up here, okay, yeah, I think we believe this Jesus guy, but man, not enough to go out there and face any kind of persecution for him. Man, if it's going to mean I lose my spot in the temple, I don't think I want that. Right, and John tells us why in verse 43. And right, it says they love the glory of man. See, it wasn't just a desire to maintain access to the synagogue. See, at the root of their denial of Christ was the glory of men. See, it says they loved the glory of men. See, this is a conversation about affections. It's what they loved. They loved glory from people. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. Never, ever substitute the glory of God for the glory of man. That's not a fair exchange. In fact, here's a great place for us to really stop and make some personal application. And I, want to, I want you to ask yourself a question. What are you motivated by this morning? What motivates you? Is it the fear of man? Is it popularity? Is it what the world would deem to be success? Maybe it's acceptance. Maybe it's financial gain. It could really be any number of things. You're here this morning and you say, I believe in Jesus. I think he's the risen Savior. I think he's Lord. But you have no desire to confess that publicly. Maybe you're Scared to admit that in front of your family members or your friends or your classmates. And I urge you to ask yourself, man, what am I really motivated by? If I deny Christ. See, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 33, he says this, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. And that's a sobering verse. That's one that should grab everyone's attention in here this morning. If you truly believe in Jesus and you know who he is and you've encountered this loving Savior in all of his glory, why not uh, proclaim him openly before all men, especially when you know that the world is dying and in need? How could you contain this living hope that you have? 
Christian, this is a challenge to go forth boldly proclaiming the glory and authority of King Jesus, regardless of what may come. See, again, the text tells us they love the glory that comes from man. Again, I want to ask you, what do you love? That's a simple question. Kind of simple. They loved the glory of men. What do you love? What has your affections? Again, it could be any number of things. See, there's a reason the Bible talks over and over and over again about the importance of having new hearts. There's a reason the Word of God again and again directs us to the importance, the necessity of heart change, of heart transformation. See, we all need heart transplants. And to take this heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, God must give us believing hearts to receive Christ Jesus and see him as greater than anything in all of existence. So again, I ask you, what do you love? Where are your affections this morning? Are they rightly ordered or are they misplaced? See, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's an important verse because, again, it speaks to where your heart is, what you value most, what motivates you. Man, that's what has your heart. See, these men denied Christ because they loved the glory of man. Again, I ask you, what do you love? If what you love leads you to deny Jesus, that isn't saving faith. That isn't genuine belief. So we've seen the problem of unbelief. We've seen the reason for unbelief. And now we've seen this sin of false belief. Finally, we'll see here the need or the necessity for belief in verses 44 through 50. Let me look at verses 44 through 46 first, and it says, And Jesus cried out, and he said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. See, verse 44 here says that Jesus cried out. Now, as we've already discussed last week, Jesus has already given his final plea to this crowd. And see, back in verse 36, it tells us that he departed and he hid himself. So it's most likely that what John records for us here didn't actually happen on this occasion. Or it's possible that Jesus is only speaking to his disciples here. But I don't really subscribe to that theory because it wouldn't make sense in my mind for Jesus to make a plea for belief to his disciples who had already committed to following him. So I believe that what John actually gives us here is simply a summary of Jesus's ministry and the closing statements of what he had said to this group before departing. So at any rate, we must give attention to what Jesus says here. And so Jesus, again, he reminds them of the necessity of belief. But not just any belief, specifically belief in him. See, friends, that is crucial. See, this isn't a call to believe in some abstract idea. This isn't a call to believe in a system or a set of principles. Jesus calls people to believe in 
him. And here he tells them why this is so important. He says, if you believe in me, then you believe in the one who sent me. That's important. He even doubles down on that statement here. He further emphasizes his unity with the Father when he says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, we've heard Jesus speak this way before back in John 8 and John 5. He's made similar statements about being one with the Father. And if anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. But see, what we learn here is a fundamental lesson about belief. It is impossible to believe in the Father without believing in the Son. That's important. See, and this was the obstacle for these Pharisees and for those among the nation of Israel. They claimed to know and love God according to the scriptures and according to the traditions that they had. But you see, when God came to them by sending his Son, born of a virgin, to dwell amongst them, they rejected him. They denied the Savior. See, the very one that they had been waiting for, they want nothing to do with him. See, again, this point is a very simple one. If you deny Jesus, you have denied God. Now, how can we make this applicable for us right here? I think this is super important. This is a call to boldness in our witness. See, brothers and sisters, as much as we love people, and we should, Because people are all created in the image of God, so we should love them. But guess what? Loving people looks like telling them the truth. And the truth is not all roads lead to heaven. You cannot construct your own system or your own way of getting to God. You see, the Lord in his word is clearly spoken. And he's told us that no man shall come to the Father except through his Son. See, that's a warning. It's an admonition to the Muslim, to the Buddhist, to the Hindu. You must tell them the truth that apart from Christ, there is no saving faith. There are no other avenues to God. Jesus says you must believe in him. But listen, get this too. We must believe in him rightly as the only begotten Son of God. So that means to the Mormon and to the Jehovah Witness who simply believe Jesus is a God or one Son among many, that's not sufficient to save. That isn't enough. It's crucial that we believe in Jesus, but we must believe in him rightly. You see, and Jesus says, if you believe in me, then you believe in the one who sent me. Then he goes on here and he says that he has come as light into the world. And we've talked about this a little bit last week, what it means for Jesus to be the light. You see, without the saving work of Christ and believing hearts, we all remain in darkness. But it is God that saves He is the one who calls us out of darkness and gives us eyes to see him in all of his glory. He is the light of the world that has given life to dead men if only we would choose to believe. Oh, the life that is to be had in Christ. It is a glorious one. You see, in verse 47, we're reminded of the purpose for why the Lord Jesus has come. Let's look at verse 47. 
Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. See here, Jesus is moving from the blessing of belief to the reality of his judgment first. Right? We are essentially reminded that unbelief is marked by consistent and willful disregard for his words. So I read the wrong verse. I read 46. I should have read 47. But let's read it quickly. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come in to judge the world. Or I did read the right verse. So I apologize. That was the right verse. I did read it. So Jesus is pointing again to this idea of judgment here. And so we're reminded that those who do not keep his words are the ones who are marked by unbelief. You see, Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. See, this is just a simple call to obedience, specifically a call to obey and believe in him. You see, but then Jesus says something here that I think is significant for us. He says, I don't judge him. He says, for I did not come to judge, I came to save. I mean, what magnificent words from the Lord Jesus. See, friends, this reminds us of the purpose of Jesus' initial coming. See, he came with the mission to save, not to judge. Does Jesus exercise judgment? Will he exercise judgment? Absolutely. Yes. However, his first purpose for coming the reason the word was made flesh, born of a virgin, dwelling amongst the people, is to save. See, Jesus came. It was a rescue mission to redeem a people for himself. See, we're all really familiar with John 3.16. <clears throat> Great verse. God so loved the world that sin his only son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that. What about the verse that follows it? John 3, 17. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world might be saved through him. That is a comforting reality this morning. That is the purpose for why Jesus first has come to save the lost. What a beautiful truth that is. And yet as incredible as that is, we must remember there will be judgment for those who do not believe. Judgment is a reality as much as salvation is a reality. And Jesus says here, I don't judge him. I don't need to judge him. It's going to be the words that I speak, the very words that you've heard me stand and proclaim amongst you, that will be your judge on the last and final day. See, they heard everything. They saw everything. They had the Savior, the Son of God amongst them. And they ignored and disregarded his words. And Jesus says, that will be the judge on the last day. And then Jesus goes on here to say that he speaks on the authority of God the Father, the one who had sent him. And what he says is what God has told him to say. See, of course he says all that God has given him to say. He is part of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, in perfect union with God the Father. 
And so the judgment that he speaks, the judgment that he exercises is really coming from God. There's no disunity there. There's no disagreement. Back in chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. See, Jesus is the word of God. John reminds us in chapter 1. He's the agent of the Father, revealing God to men. And in verse 50, he reminds us here that the word that he's come to bring is eternal life, given to him by God the Father. But again, as we look at this text and we prepare to close, we see that they heard his words, disregard the truth, and only heaped more condemnation on themselves. So listen, I know that's a lot that we went through. And there are probably a lot of questions that you have, and maybe you're wrestling with some of the truth that we talked about this morning. Like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to make of that. I want to close here with simple, three simple questions, or see, three simple encouragements I want to give you. It says, as we look at this, I want to encourage the believer first. To everyone in this room who has a believing heart, my encouragement to you this morning is praise God for that truth. See, remember that you too were one time far off, dead in your trespasses and sins, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2. But praise God for his mercy. Praise God for the gift of being born again. I want to encourage you, believer, to preach that message boldly, to move forward, giving all glory and praise to the one who deserves it. I hope a text like this reminds you of the wonderful realities of salvation and the glories of Christ. To the second group of people here, to those in here that may have exercised a particular level of faith, maybe it's just a surface level belief, a superficial faith, I want to challenge you to examine yourself. Have you truly trusted in Christ? Are you only committed to Christ as long as you don't have to confess him openly? Are there stipulations to your following Jesus? Like these men here? Yeah, we believe, but we just don't want to do it in front of people because of what we might lose. If that's anyone in this room, that's my challenge to you this morning, is to examine yourself and to think about that. My prayer is that you would see Christ Jesus as worthy of your utter devotion, that you'd commit yourself to him fully today, no matter what may come. And finally, to the third group of people in here this morning, to those here that don't know Jesus at all, you haven't been born again. You don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. My encouragement to you right now is to repent and believe the gospel. See, the text tells us that as men and women continue, sometimes God just hardens their hearts and gives them over to that unbelief. I don't want anybody to leave this place like that this morning. I don't want anybody to leave this place apart from Jesus Christ, not in saving relationship with him. You see, you're hearing the gospel preached this morning. You're hearing the word of God opened in front of you. 
the words of eternal life. But God has graciously given you an opportunity right now to repent and believe in Jesus. Listen, and when you do, you find that he is a glorious and loving Savior who provides abundant and eternal life, who gives us compassion, pardon, and forgiveness. You don't find hostility and anger. You find a loving Savior who welcomes you with open arms. And you have the opportunity to go from death to life right now by believing in Christ Jesus. So that's my encouragement to you this morning. I don't want anybody to leave here without understanding that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you for this opportunity we've had. But we thank you that even as we wrestle through hard truths, God, you are good. Though we're reminded of your sovereignty, even over belief, God, that you give us hearts to receive you that you give us eyes to see you. You give us ears to hear the message of the gospel and respond to it. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work right now. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, I pray that that would change today. I pray that they would respond in faith to the gospel message. But Father, I pray also for those who may have exercised a certain level of faith. I pray for those who are timid this morning who may say in their minds, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't want to talk about him with my friends or my family or my coworkers because what are they going to think about me? God, I pray that you would give them a boldness to confess you openly. But Lord, I pray that you would also give them wisdom on how to do that. Father, and lastly, I pray for everyone in here who is in the household of faith. God, I thank you for each and every one of them. And I pray that we would be encouraged from this time this morning as we remember, Lord, that you've given us hearts to believe, that we're blessed to be counted amongst your people, that we're blessed to be able to hear the gospel and that we responded, whether it was years ago, months ago, whatever it looked like, that's all to your praise and glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. Would we go forward from this place proclaiming your glory? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.